And welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. We've been rocking on along. It's hard to believe when we started the show, we were talking about games and wrap-ups of games. Now we've kind of morphed into more of a an interview show, more of a magazine. Charlie, to be honest with you, I've enjoyed the heck out of this, man. We've had some great guests over the last couple of months. I mean, last week we had Jim Case, the former pitching coach at Mississippi State. We have Steve Smith on a few weeks ago. Of course, Butch Thompson, Lane Burroughs. I've enjoyed having some of these former assistant coaches and former players on. And we're going to have a former player on later in the show today, Chris Young, who pitched at State 2000 to 2002. Now the bullpen coach with the Chicago Cubs. He's going to join us. And, man, I look forward to talking with him. But here's the thing that's really stood out to me is we see even guys that have gone on and pursued other opportunities at other places. They look back at their time at Mississippi State, and they simply say this place is just special. It's amazing, too, how vivid the memories are, how detailed people have been. They talk about what count a pitch was and what the score was and where they were sitting. It's been really interesting. And if you look back at our goals when we started this show, obviously we wanted to talk about the games being played. We wanted to talk about the games coming up. But the other thing we wanted to do was reconnect with a lot of that Mississippi State baseball history. And if clearing out the season has done anything, it's given us a lot more time to go back and not just talk to people, not just have a quick visit, but to go in depth with some of these guys. And I'll be honest with you, I am super excited about having Chris Young on. I mean, this is a guy who's coaching in Wrigley Field. I mean, one of the <laughs> one of the temples of baseball and a guy who was not that long ago pitching on the mound here. Talked to Carlton Lower last week. That was a great interview. People have talked about uh, him living in Jackson, Wyoming now, working as an outfitter. Of course, we're brought to you by Farm Bureau. Go with the home team. Check out favorites.com if you're looking. If you have other insurance with another carrier, look at the Farm Bureau. Check out their rates, favorites.com. Henry Hamill and the gang, they have agents in every county throughout the state of Mississippi. And just a wonderful organization. Here's the thing about Farm Bureau. When disaster strikes, you know you've got guys and boots on the ground and guys that are in your community to come help you in any way possible. So go with the home team and Farm Bureau. Charlie, real quick, draft has been set now at five rounds. What does that say for Mississippi State? Well, I think you're still going to lose some guys you don't want to lose. You've got some signees or at least one who's almost certain to go. You've got a middle infield you're probably going to have to replace. But then you're going to have a lot of guys back who might have had some decisions to make. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens this year. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens next year because that's just that many more guys who are going to be draft eligible in a year who in maybe a bigger draft are going to be going. It's going to just play havoc on college baseball for years to come. And we talked a little bit with Jim Case about that last week. He's the head coach at Jacksonville State. And I can't imagine what Chris Lamonis is going through right now because all of a sudden you start talking about roster management, but it's not just roster management in 2021. It's not about just next season. It's going forward. So all of a sudden now I'm thinking about, okay, how many guys am I going to have that don't play as much in 2022 than 23? This is a process, and we've said it many, many times. This is going to be a three-, four-, five-year process to get out of. One of the things that Pat McMahon used to talk about all the time, one of his phrases, is we need class and positional balance. We need kind of even numbers at positions, even numbers in classes. Pat McMahon and his class and positional balance 
would not be very happy over the next few years. And here's the thing. State should be really good in baseball. Got a transfer coming in, a graduate transfer from Jacksonville, play at second base or compete for the job at second base. You've had some guys who have left the program that you know, over the past couple of weeks, and that's one of the things you're going to see. You're going to see addition and subtraction, but there's not going to be a whole lot of addition going forward. You're going to see some subtraction everywhere in the country. And you feel bad, too, about guys coming out of high school now. It's just that much more compact and compressed in front of them. So a five-round draft in the Major League Baseball draft. We've got a great show for you. When Charlie and I come back, we'll go back in Bulldog history, brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. We'll talk about first baseman over the last 45 years. And then later in the show, we'll talk to Chris Young, the bullpen coach for the Chicago Cubs. All of that coming up on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Mark Gregory, Charlie Winfield. It's time now for our look back segment, brought to you by our friends at Country Pleasing Sausage. Well, I talked to Henry Cooper just today. Henry Cooper and the gang at Country Meat Packers down in Florence, Mississippi. They're making the best sausage anywhere known to man. Get the original, get the jalapeno cheddar, pineapple pork, andouille. They're still putting it out in all the grocery stores. Everybody's talking about the possible meat shortage. Ain't got to worry about Henry and those guys at Country Pleasing. They're throwing it out there daily and still working as hard as ever. Country Pleasing Sausage bringing you our look back at Bulldog history. And Charlie Winfield, one of the things we did a few weeks ago that really was a lot of fun and had a lot of feedback from it was when we looked at Bulldog shortstops and I was trying to think about another position where you possibly have guys who played the uh, position for a lengthy amount of time, and I started thinking about first baseman. Let's talk about first baseman in Bulldog history. And some of the guys, when you look back at some of the starters who played first base, some of the guys we haven't mentioned at all on the show so far, if you talk to people in the late 1970s, 75, 76, 77, the people, when we got ready to do our draft early in the year, they asked what year we were going to start, and I said 77. They were like, let me tell you something. Jim Callaher may be one of the best first basemen to ever play at Mississippi State. Callaher didn't hit for a lot of power, but he hit for average, hit 351 in 77. I mean, he was a guy who just put the bat on the ball. And one of those guys that sometimes gets missed, so many times when we start talking about baseball, we want to talk about 1979 on, but Callaher, was, he was a player. And then you had Weisheim, 78, 79. Tom McCulloch was in there as well a little bit in 1978. Combat, Tim Weisheim. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then in 1980, and here's the thing when you start thinking about first baseman, you know, we've, we only had two four-year starters at shortstop with Matthew Maniscalco being one, and the other was Brad Hildreth. But in this case, you had a lot of guys who were three-year guys. And we talk about Callaher, 75, 76, 77. Then 80, 81, 82, you had the big basher. You had Bruce Castoria, who had that just unbelievable season in 1981. He had 29 home runs. And if it's not for the great year that Castoria has, we talk so much more about Mark Gillespie, who had that 410 average 
hit 20 home runs in his own right, but you forget about that a little bit because of what Castoria did. Here's the thing I remember about Bruce Castoria. Of course, he played a little bit before my time, but Bruce Castoria tore his Achilles in the alumni game, and that pretty much did it for the alumni game of people coming back. <laughs> you remember the old alumni games? Oh, yeah. They were phenomenal. Everybody came back to those. Castoria, 80, 81, 82. Of course, you know the guy, 83, 84, 85, Will Clark. You really transcended that position over at first. All right, but let's back up in 83 because there's another guy that played over there as well, and had he not had an issue with an illness, we may be not talking about Clark just quite as fast, and that's Chris Maloney. Maloney yeah. was a 300 hitter, played in 40 games. He was the first baseman. You know, Clark did not start to begin that year. He was playing behind Maloney and, of course, got his chance and it's kind of the Lou Gehrig Wally Pip deal. Once he took it, he wasn't giving it back. And Chris Maloney's a guy a guy that's been around Major League Baseball for a long time, was with the St. Louis Cardinals organization. Of course, he was a, the manager in Memphis, spent some time as a manager of the Mississippi Braves. Jackson guy who has really done well in Major League Baseball. Then 86-87, a guy that moved from DH. He was DH in 85. That was John Mitchell. And so John started at first in 86 and 87. You know, John Mitchell was a guy, double-digit home run guy in 85-86, and was a very dependable first baseman who basically got better every year he played. And then 88, 89, and 90, Tommy Raffo. And what just a, career. a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, just an unbelievable player. And Underrated as a defender. He was known for his bat because he hit so well. But, boy, you could one-hop him over there to him. He was going to just suck it up every time. And the thing that was crazy about Tommy is he was kind of the opposite. I mean, he was that left-handed first baseman, but he hit from the right side. You rarely see that. Very rarely. And a lot of people think that's the reason he didn't get drafted after the big junior year he had. He had a monster junior year, doesn't get drafted, and then is back in 90. Then in 1991, you had Rob Norman, who played at first. He'd also come in and pitch. You know, we talked about on one, that on one of the broadcasts one time, about talking about all the Bulldogs who had played in a position and then came in to pitch. We talked about Pete Young. But Rob Norman was a guy we would trot in from first base every now and then. Yeah, kind of like we did Raffo a little bit yeah. earlier in his career. Drew Williams in 92-93, really a guy that is kind of underlooked a little bit. Drew Williams was a very good first baseman. You go back in that 93 season, I think he hits like 16 home runs that year. And this was a good baseball player and a really good first baseman. Brian Clark, 94, 95, 96. Now, Brian Clark and Larry Tompkins split some time in 1995. Richard Lee played some in 96 at first, and then Richard took over in 97 and 98. But Richard Lee, highly a part of that highly ranked recruiting class we talked about with Steve Smith a couple of weeks ago. He came in with Adam Pyatt and Eric DeBose and Barry Patton and all those guys that made up that Brad Freeman class that was number one in the country. So Richard Lee was kind of that cornerstone at first base in 96, 97, and 98. And in that bash era of the hot bats, when you had a guy like Richard Lee and Adam Pyatt in your order, you talk about guys that could hit missiles. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you that's what you wanted to see back then, guys on the corner who could hit the baseball. <laughs> you had some big hitters there for a while. Okay, a guy I almost took in our draft. Okay, we're talking about early in the, in the year when we had the top players to ever play here that did not play in the major leagues. I almost went with Cliff Wren. The year he had in 99, transfer from Southern Miss, came here for one year. Cliff Wren was exceptional in 1999. 
another one of those topics we discussed on broadcast, guys who had transferred between USM and Mississippi State. We've seen guys go the other way. Cliff Wren was the guy who came from Hattiesburg to Starkville. Had a big year. So did Luke Atkins. In 2000, John Knott played over at first base. The One of the things that John Knott did, and one of the things I want to ask Chris Young later in the show, is John Knott hit one of the hardest balls I've ever seen in my life, a line drive off the center field wall in Clemson. You know, John Knott was a guy who was just that big, brawn, brute strength power over at first. Ended up playing with the Padres. And he could hit it a long ways. And then 2001, 2002, 2003, Matthew Brinson comes to Mississippi State, Northwest ranking guy, had a lot of success in high school, came up here a three-year starter over at first base. Big power left-handed hitter. And then after Brinson, you had Brad Jones, 04, 05, 06. Brad still lives here in Starkville. Banker, we give him a hard time. And, and Brad, really, when you start looking at numbers, had a very good career here at 04, 05, 06. He did. Brad, one of those guys, sometimes because of people, you see him around a lot, you perhaps tend to take him for granted. But that's a guy who, who played a lot of good baseball for Mississippi State. And then Moreland in 2007, Mitch played a little bit in the outfield early in his career, moved over to first base, and, of course, pitched a little bit as well. Whatever happened to him? I don't know. Talked to Mitch earlier this year, of course, with the Red Sox. 2008, a guy we haven't talked about. A guy that we have overlooked on this show, and I feel really bad about it. Played here one year in 2008. Junior college transfer, Tyler Moore. Brother, Reed Humphreys. Tyler Moore played in the big leagues with the Washington, Washington Nationals. You know, Tyler Moore had a really good year in 2008, the last year for Ron Polk. It's interesting, isn't it, that we've spent all this time talking about Mississippi State baseball, and we've overlooked, at times, a major leaguer. That speaks to just the depth of the talent that is played in this program. Connor Powers in 09 and 10, a guy that really hit with some power, very good, underrated first baseman a little bit as well. And uh, Connor, friend of the show. Yeah, and you look at Connor Powers, Richard Lee, Drew Williams. Those are guys who played on both sides of the infield. Corner guys, but guys who made the transition either, either from third to first or first to third. Ryan Collins in 2011, of course, that was a team that got hot in 2011 late in the season, won the regional at Georgia Tech, went to Florida, beaten in the Super Regionals in three. And then 12, 13, 14, and 15, our only four-year guy, the Big Bear, we had him a couple weeks ago, Wes Ray. Yeah, that was a guy who was just larger than life the entire time that he was here. He just looked a little bit like Pete Young. When Pete Young showed up at Mississippi State, he just looked like a guy who played hard, just looked like a guy who was willing to get a little bit dirty and and really play with everything he had. Wes Ray was that guy. 2016, and I'll admit this, and I think you were doing a broadcast with me in 2016. Oh, don't bring me down. I know. it. Early in the year, we were struggling a little bit in 16. You know, we had the bad year in 15, 16 struggling. And I remember looking at you and saying, you know what? I don't know if Nate Lowe can play. <laughs> and he, <laughs> Nathaniel Lowe in 2016 had a slow start, really got hot as the season went on. And now there's another big leaguer. He had a really good one-year stand at Mississippi State. It's very interesting when you take statistics and look at the overall stats then go back and look at league only. Most times what you see are guys who are better overall than they are in league play. You kind of get your hits 
against some weaker pitching, get it in the midweek, but then you get to the weekends and struggle. Nate Lowe was the opposite. Nate Lowe was a 348 hitter on the year. He hit 390 in the league. He was 50 points better in the league than he was overall. I'm glad I didn't say that on the air. I'm glad that was in a commercial break. I'm telling you that. And then in 17, Rooker had a great year. Brent Rooker. Um, historic. Had a historic 2017. And so that's kind of a look back at former Bulldog first baseman. Man, it's great to see some of those guys and see some of those names in there. But uh, this has been a look back at Bulldog history brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. It's time now for our guest line segment brought to you each week by our friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland, located just west of Greenwood. You can see their big plant on the north side of Highway 82 between Greenwood and Itabina. And that's where they're producing the best farm-raised catfish in America. And each week, we like to feature one of their great restaurants they supply. And this week, we stay right here in Starkville. You know, Charlie, if there's one thing we don't have a whole lot of choices here in Starkville, it's great places for really good catfish. We've got a great one now, just open. That's Georgia Blue, just off Main Street downtown on the corner of Jackson and Lampkin. Man, it's a great location, and everything they cook is great. And they can really fry up some good catfish from Heartland. So next time you're in Starkville, come on by Georgia Blue, and there's a good chance you'll probably see me and Charlie in there. And this is once again brought to you by our good friends at Heartland Catfish. And let's go to the Heartland Hotline where Chris Young, former Bulldog, played here at Mississippi State 2000-2002, joins us on the show, current bullpen coach for the Chicago Cubs. Hey, Chris, we really appreciate you taking your time out to, to join a couple Bulldogs to talk about Mississippi State baseball. Hey, guys, I appreciate you having me. I am uh, not a whole lot of things I like doing more than talking about Mississippi State, Mississippi State baseball. Chris, coming up from Stowe, Ohio, and that was one of the things, you came in in 2000 under Pat McMahon, Jim Case. You show up here on campus, and you pitched early in your career. But first and foremost, a guy from Stowe, Ohio, how in the world did you end up in Starkville, Mississippi? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a great question. You know, I was um, – I was I was lucky and, and I had a uh, I'd gotten an invitation to play uh, back then it was called the Area Code Games they were out in Wilmington North Carolina and, um, and there was also another showcase circuit back then at the time it was called I think Team One and uh, I, I ended up knocking them both out in the same week I went to Wilmington I pitched I went back to this Team One which was at the University of Kentucky and played some third base and I think I pitched one inning well the story as I was later told is I think. I'm not, I get them confused, but I think Coach Raff might have been in Wilmington, and Coach Case was in Lexington, and ended up on both of their lists, and they had a conversation, and uh, I'll never forget, I came home one, one, one night from, uh, I think I was hanging out with my friends, and my mom was, you know, I, I was lucky that she, every night or every other couple of nights, she'd rattle off a couple of people that called that I missed, and I remember, she read through a couple, and one of them was Mississippi State, and I remember going, hey, whoa, 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 hold on, back up, Mom. Who? Did you miss if you stayed? And so uh, it was, uh, it's obviously, I mean, I, I was I was well aware at the time of, of the baseball program and, and thunder and lightning. And so um, it was a, uh, I was pretty excited when that phone call came. Chris, a lot of guys come in as freshmen and sort of ease in. You pitched in over 20 games as a freshman, nine in the SEC, and had success doing it. How was that transition for you from going to high school to taking the mound in front of big crowds at Duty Noble? 
you know what? Like I was so lucky to have my, my freshman year to just have these awesome teammates, Darren Wright, Travis Chapman, Jamie Rock, like these guys that have just been through a lot of these battles and, and kind of, and took me under their wing a little bit. And, and so I think those guys, you know, I, I was probably a little bit naive to what I was doing some of the time, <laughs> but, but the one thing I loved doing was competing. And I think that it was able to resonate with some of the older guys. And so they just really, they really took me under their wing and, and made kind of compete just to let me go out and compete and not really worry about what was going on. And that's one of, that's one of my first real memories is just that group of guys just being like a rock for me. Talking with Chris Young, the bullpen coach with the Chicago Cubs. And, Chris, you mentioned all those guys. That 2000 team when you came in as a freshman, we had a lot of senior pitchers on that team. You start talking about Mark Freed and Tanner Brock and Kevin Donovan. So, I mean, you had just a lot of older guys, and then you were the new pup on the block. Let's kind of shift over. I mean, so coming in, you had a lot of seniors in that starting rotation. And then at the tail end, you had a Paul Mahalam, a young guy who was phenomenal as a starter, and you pitched in over 70 games in your career. And sometimes coaches say the hardest thing to do in baseball is be a middle reliever, and you were successful. Your ERA was tremendous over those three years. What is the mindset of a very good middle reliever? You know, it's a good question. I think the one thing that I took a lot of pride in was throwing strikes and throwing a lot of strikes. Um, I just really – I love to compete. And I love to throw strikes. And I think being able to do those two things was really advantageous for me to do them in any role. You know, whether I was coming in the back of a game, coming in early, coming in middle, a couple times there in some cool moments, got to make some starts towards the end of it, was really just trying to maintain that mindset of, of just competing. It was always so much fun to compete with that jersey on. And that's the one thing that, again, like I want to say it was easy, but it was just so much fun to compete that some of the other stuff, the peripheral stuff on the outside never really got to me because I just had so much fun playing baseball there. We think about that 2000 season. You're a freshman. You come in, and, you know, that was a season we kind of had our ups and downs, had that nice stretch early in the year, and then kind of had a little bit of sag at the end. And then all of a sudden, regional time rolls around. Notre Dame comes in. It's always one of those regionals that is just etched in my mind. Obviously, the big walk-off win at the end. What's your big memory of that 2000 season in that regional? Man, I, I still get, I, I still get goosebumps thinking about Kevin Donovan running in from the bullpen on Sunday night. You know, he had just thrown, uh, you know, a hundred something pitches on Friday to get a win where, you know, Notre Dame clips us the first game. We're battling back and forth with them and we're getting a little thin. And, and all of a sudden he, I remember he runs down to the bullpen and when he came out of that, at the time it was that fence down that left field line, and that place erupted, and he came in and held the fort down um, to get to, to get to Ty Martin's big swing. That's that was one of the coolest. That was one of the coolest memories I ever had playing baseball there. Talking with Chris Young, Chris, you know what I remember about that is when he came out of the bullpen, it was almost like a reverse wave. The people in the corner saw it was Donovan, and then it was slowly the people began to stand as he ran in front of them because they realized who it was. And I also remember this, Charlie. Three doors down, if I go crazy, will you still call me Superman? They played that with him jogging in from the bullpen. And I tell you what, he was Superman that night. 2001, Chris, 2001 SEC Tournament MVP. 
and we go to the Hoover in that 01 season, and everything just kind of fell into place. Of course, you pitching over five innings in that championship game. What memories do you have from that 01 season and that SEC tournament? Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I, I tell people all the time, I, I think that that tournament in Birmingham, all you know, every year we were there, it's one of the it's for me, it's one of the neatest baseball experiences you'll ever get. I'm an SEC homer, obviously. So I, I, I say, hey, Omaha's great, but come to Birmingham for a week if you want to see the best eight teams in the country playing baseball. And and I just remember it's just the the competition level every day. I, I remember the, the motorcycles bringing you in, you know, and then the fans bringing towels down that long stretch of the road before you get to the ballpark. And, and there was just so many neat memories that came from that. I remember that, I mean, that, that championship game, I remember the the crowds were the crowd was huge and both sides were getting after it and and I think one of the cooler memories is is, is I don't know the exact number until I've lost in my head but if you go back and you look at both of those rosters boy there was a lot of big leaguers on both of those teams. Yeah, there absolutely were. And of course, LSU came in; they'd won something like sixteen games straight. And I think Paul Mahalam started that championship game, if I remember right. And then you go five and a third to to close it out. Don't allow a run and two wins in the SEC tournament, get the MVP, that's got to be one of those memories that just sticks with you. Yeah, it really does. It was a really – it was a – the whole week was great. Um, that day was really special. I just – I remember it. My parents had had a bunch of people over at the house um, up in up in Ohio watching the game. My girlfriend at the time, my wife now, was there. Um, just, uh, you know, it's, it's LSU, it's Mississippi State, the crowd – um, you know, I just, just being around the teammates, the, the trope, it, the whole thing was just, it's such a, it's such a really cool tournament. It's such a really, there's just a mystique about winning that tournament that that's just really fun. And, and again, to your point, it just makes it incredibly memorable. So 2000, 2001, Pat McMahon is here. Jim Case, by the way, head coach at Jacksonville state now, and then 2002, you have to make the transition. Ron Polk comes back to Mississippi State, and Darren Schoenrock comes in. How was it on you kind of making that transition from one staff that you've had for two years to your third year with a new staff? Yeah, it was, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Coach Polk, I mean, is the best. I think, you know, the news we got today on Coach Polk is just incredible. So so that from the top, just I was so incredibly excited to play for him and, and to – because I'd heard the stories from Travis and, and these guys about, about Coach Polk. And so I was just so incredibly happy that I was going to get a chance to play for one of the greatest coaches in college sports. And so I think that was, first and foremost, um, I was excited for a fresh opportunity. Um, I was excited. You know, I, I didn't know Coach Rock, but I heard a lot of great things about him. So that part, it was really exciting at first. Um, I remember this because I've, I've got a good memory of when I stunk. I remember I went down, we went down to South Alabama that year. And I got my teeth kicked in. Or no, excuse me, it wasn't South Alabama. It was Hattiesburg, Southern Miss. And I just, I remember I got my teeth kicked in. And I was playing the poor me card. And I wanted to start. And I wasn't starting. Coach Rock called me in one after the next day. And kind of called me out a little bit. And and from then on, um, I, I remember just, it kind of that last year just took off. And uh, and Coach Rock and I had a great relationship. Obviously, we also coached, uh, we also talked to Coach Polk a lot. I think I saw... And Coach Rock and his wife, they came, uh, I saw them in Atlanta this summer. Got a chance to get them down behind the field for uh, for batting practice and catch up with them. So uh, it was a, uh, there was a little bit of rocking and rockiness in there, but um, I was just so incredibly blessed to be able to just to, to be on a team that Ron Polk coached. 
Bart, just to highlight, this is a guy telling you about the rough spot in his season. He pitched in 12 games in league play with an ERA of 2.1. Uh, whatever adjustment was made must have worked pretty well. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Chris, would you hang on with us another segment? Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll come back and talk more on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. We're talking to the bullpen coach of the Chicago Cubs, Chris Young, played at State 2000 to 2002. Back with more. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield, and let's go back to the phones. Chris Young, bullpen coach with Chicago Cubs, pitched at State 2000 to 2002. Stowe, Ohio native, and had just a great career at Mississippi State. Let's shift gears just a little bit, Chris. Leaving Mississippi State in 2002, then all of a sudden you go into minor league baseball. What's the hardest adjustment for a player to step out of the spotlight of the SEC and then all of a sudden find himself pitching in minor league baseball? You know, I think it's that first road trip when you're in the middle of Boise, Idaho, and the bus breaks down and you don't have Big E there to fix it right away and get you going again. (laughs) Um, You know, it's it's definitely definitely when you get to play at a – at a program the caliber of Mississippi State, it's it's a drop off. You know the the talent's not, but but just with the everything you're used to, the fans, that feeling you get of of running out onto the field, and so you really have to. Uh, and for me, it was just a little bit of you had to self motivate yourself a little bit more. You know, and I think you know you spend three years playing for the front of that jersey and everything it's meant and everyone that's come before you to getting into a spot where all of a sudden it's really just about taking care of yourself. And so like that, that's an adjustment, but then, you know, it's, uh, it's nice because it's really, it's just baseball and you can get down to just compete and then you get a chance to compete every night. And, um, I think those two things were the biggest changes. Chris, after playing baseball, you end up spending time. And one of the first things you do is in the scouting role. I'm curious how you've seen the role of scouts change in the kind of the day of analytics and the day of money ball and those type things. How much is the the role of a scout changed kind of in in your time in baseball? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think it's 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 changed dramatically. Um, with the age of video, with the age of information, analytics, there's so many things now that we can quantify that have become factual that as scouts in the past, we had to use our eyes, we had to use our our history of seeing things with. And so that's there's been a big adjustment from that where, you know, you, you know, you needed to look at, you know, how's this fastball play? Well, now I've got 45 different metrics that tell me how this fastball plays. And so there was definitely, as I was into the scouting, there was definitely adjustments that were taking place, none more so than my last three years when I was with the Astros. And you really got to see that the push of analytics, the push of information and the push of how to use it and how aggressively to use it versus a little bit of the, of the scouting, the feel, the eye test, the history, the makeup of knowing a player. Um, I think the teams that do both of those things well to this day are some of your best scouting departments in baseball. But I think to your question, it definitely changed um, even over the course of the five or six years I was in that profession. You know, you hear a lot of times guys say, he just looks like a ball player. I don't care what the gun says. I don't care what the computer says. And then obviously you've got, computers sitting there showing you a guy with great spin rate, great movement. 
How much time in your experience or how many times in your experience did the eyes and the computers clash with each other? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, like, I think I was that guy, quite honestly. Like, I had a, you know, an average major league fastball, an average movement, you know, I could, I had above average command. But I think the one thing that, that I had that didn't show up on track, man, or didn't show up in with data was just, was the ability to pitch every day, the bounce back ability, the, the aggression, the consistency, the ability to just pound strikes, the ability to get ground balls. I think some of those things don't jump off the data at you. And, and that's really why just having scouts is so important you get, when you get a chance to see these guys. And, and I'm sure you guys have seen players that have come through that, that you kind of go, man, I wonder why this guy wasn't drafted higher. And, and I think because you guys get to know these players so well, like, I like having that conversation out loud, I go back to thinking about like Kendall Graveman who I, I didn't get a chance to play with, but watched a lot of them on TV. And I just kept watching this guy going, man, this guy's really good. Man, this guy's really good. And, and someone took a chance on him and three, you know, two and a half, three years later, he's in the big leagues. And so I think it happens a lot. And, and quite frankly, I think the teams that handle those conversations the best are the teams that have the most impactful scouting and analytical departments. Talking with Chris Young, the bullpen coach with Chicago Cubs, played at State from 2000 to 2002. Uh, Chris, what is a bullpen coach? I mean, what what is the role during a game? And have you ever seen a guy in the pen and said, man, this guy's going to get lit up, and then he goes in and just dominates? <laughs> I know I felt like I was going to get lit up and gone in, you know, or, or felt like I was going to dominate and I've gone in and got lit up. So I've got a little experience on that road. Um. You know, I, I think that the role down there, I think it's really changing as, as information's changing, as matchups are changing. And so I think uh, the first role, the most important role down there is to build a rapport with your guys and to make sure that they know that you have their back. I, I think major league relievers, college relievers, any relievers in general seem to get the short end of the stick in a lot of occasions, you know? And so I think it's really important to, to support those guys, to have their back, to have their best interest in mind. I think that's the number one role down there. And then number two is you really just want them to be prepared when they run out that door. You want them to be prepared for the hitters they're going to face. You want them to be prepared mentally to go into that situation. And some of that stuff, you know, starts the morning of a new series. Some of that starts with, um, you know, some of those conversations down there. I think we'll have, like, you have a lot of fun down the bullpen because you've got some, you've got time to kill. But at the same time, there's also some time down there to have some impactful conversations to to find that guy that might be in a rough spot and build him back up, and or to find that guy that's really clicking right now, and, and maybe just see where he's at mentally, so that when he goes into a rough spot, like all relievers do, you've kind of got something to go back to to pick him back up to make him feel good. Chris, I remember Jonathan Holder loosening up in the bullpen in 2013 in the College World Series. We're playing Indiana. And Greg Dry, who's now over at Auburn, good friend, I sent Greg a text during the Indiana game, and I said, how's Holder looking in the bullpen? And I'll never forget, he says, he's throwing cricket balls down here. He's bouncing everything left and right. I hope we don't have to use him. And then he comes into the game, and it's just lights out. It's amazing how sometimes even guys who really pay attention and practice hard and work hard, it's amazing how sometimes when you step out on the mound in front of all those people that the mindset just completely changes. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I, I was um, uh, just a really neat story I had in spring training. I was having a conversation with Craig Kimbrell this spring before we kind of got stopped. And, 
and obviously one of the best closers of our generation, potential Hall of Famer. And we were talking about his velocity in spring training and where he's at. And and he said, he said, I said, are you, are you good with it? Are you happy with where you're at right now? And he said, I'm extremely happy because I know I've got one to two, if not three more miles an hour coming the first time somebody flips on the lights. And so I think there's just that, that mentality that, that athletes have that when you would, that the best athletes have exactly, you know, when you, when you put the lights on, when you put that guy in that other uniform there, that, that they've got the ability to go up another level. And, and I think that's a really cool trait to be around. Kind of calling back to your days as a scout a little bit, Chris, Bart and I yep. obviously are huge college baseball fans. Uh, I'm curious where you see Major League Baseball today in terms of the value it places on the experience that some of these guys playing in the SEC, uh, playing in other big conferences, have as college baseball players, and where the role of college baseball still fits into the bigger picture. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I really think that that you when you see these college guys, you know, I'd sit in the stands and watch a minor league game and you're at one of the lower levels, low A or high A, these SEC, these ACC guys, in my opinion, most of the time they just jump off the table because for the most part, they do everything right. They run the bases the right way. They field the right way. They've been trained the right way, and so they, they just jump off the table at you. And, and you see that, and, and guys that, that are that fundamentally sound as the guys that come out of Mississippi State, they show up in double A really quick because they've got the ability to play the game fundamentally. Their managers like them, their field coordinators like them because they can trust them. And then once you get to double A, then, you, you know, the talent takes over, the hard work takes over. And, and these guys that are really polished have the chance to really get to the big leagues quick. And so I think that's, I don't think that's lost. I think amateur scouts, uh, I think player development programs, I think front offices tend to gravitate towards those guys because of their experiences playing in front of big crowds. They are exposed to an incredibly high level of teachers of the game of baseball. And, and so I think when you, when you take those two things, those guys tend to do really well when they get to professional baseball. And, and I think that's how you see that. I don't want to say it has a role, but because I, I think college baseball in its own entity can stand on its own because of all the things that make it great that made that or, or that make it different i think and i just kind of go back to just that passion that passion of playing for the front of the jersey i think that's so unique to college baseball that it makes it stand out it stands alone that eight person tournament they have in june in omaha is so unique it's so cool so i don't necessarily that it has to that it have to group them together because i think college baseball stands alone so well on its own talking with chris young bullpen coach with the chicago cubs and and Chris, now with Major League Baseball, there's so many reports out there as far as the possibility of getting things, the engine back rolling pretty soon. As far as the downtime, I mean, what has been the role? I mean, that one of the things when you talk to college football coaches right now is, you know, everything is a Zoom call. Everything is a WebEx. Everything is a text message. And now all of a sudden you've got to get everything back in order. You had just a very abbreviated spring training. In your mind, how long would it take to get everything back and rolling before you can actually play a game? Yeah, I think I, I feel just like those college those college football coaches. I think, you know, early on in this process, one of the neat things that that uh, some of our, our mental skills coaches with the with the Cubs recognized early on was 
that we can use this downtime to connect. And I think it's, it's, it's really neat. I think it was a really strong point. So we've had a, I, we've stayed in contact with our players um, in, in definitely in different ways. Sometimes it's just a FaceTime. It's a zoo, you know, it's an official zoom with everybody. Sometimes it's just texting. I mean, I've, I've gotten to know our players so much more in the last eight weeks than I had before on a level that's different from baseball. A couple of guys we text back and forth complaining about homeschooling. There's a couple of guys that we text back and forth and we're talking about the Michael Jordan documentary. And so I, I think that time's been valuable to connect with guys. And we've kind of asked our guys to do the same thing. Like I know I've gotten to do some neat things, like talking about that group of guys. I was, I've been on a Zoom call on a couple Sunday or Friday nights now with Travis Chapman and Darren Wright, Scott Clark, Lee Parks, Alan, Alan Leonard that we just before and you never found the time to do. And so we try to take this time, time to connect. And then baseball players always work off of dates, you know, first game of the season, first day of fall practice, first day of spring practice. And so as we've kind of started to get some of these soft dates out there, you know, these guys, you don't really need to do much to them. The light bulb comes on, you know, they say, Hey, you know, everyone's kind of talking about this June 10th and you just say, yeah, it's in pencil. We're talking about it. And then these guys get going. And so, you know, they're talking about this three-week ramp-up. I think it's, it's, it's aggressive. But the one thing that I've learned being really fortunate enough to be around Major League Baseball players is, is you give them a date, they're going to get themselves ready to go out and be the best versions of themselves. And so I think it's an aggressive ramp-up, but I, but I think uh, it'll be enough time. Chris, I uh, know from following you on social media, I mean, some guys – go to college and then move along you were still all bulldog and I'm kind of curious thinking back about your time here what are what are your memories that we haven't talked about that they kind of really stick with you as as you've gone through or maybe helped you as you've developed as a coach yeah well I guess my first memory I I should say this I should say this before I get in any trouble is is my wife went to Mississippi State so she played volleyball for four years uh the same time I was there and so that's really where my strong connection comes from is her and I both were meeting there um, and, and dating there and, and married. And so it's, it's something where when I'm home in the off season, it's every Saturday as we're finding that Bulldog football game. It's reconnecting with our former teammates. It's getting back to one of her former teammates was the volleyball coach for a while. So we were able to get back and go to volleyball games and get cool access to football games. And, and so there's just a, it's a really special place for us because it's where we met. And I think that's a, that's a big part of it. And then I think the second part of it was, was just the, the friendships, the relationships. It's, I still have a, conversations left and right with the people that were my host families. The, some of the people from the left field lounge, I still, people will still send pictures back and forth. And um, it's been neat in this downtime to see Craig Jackson posting pictures from all these weekends to seeing former teammates and guys that I got to follow when I left. And so it's just a, it's a place for me that I'm very proud of. It's a place for me that all I think about are just tremendous memories. I think of, I think of the football game where uh, I think it was like maybe 2000 where we beat Florida. And then the next day there's a picture of Jonathan Papelbon riding a goalpost in the newspaper. <laughs> and we got to go to practice and we, we got to go to practice and we got to figure out how we're going to get passed out of this. And, and, and you know, I, I, I think about all those things. I think about going to the basketball games when they were playing the Kentuckys of the world. And the place is packed and it's rocking. So it's just, it's, there's so many things about it that, that when I think of it, bring up just great memories. And I, and I think the, the, obviously number one is just is meeting my wife there. But number two, and I think 
this resonates with everybody. It's just the people. There's just no other place I've been where I've met so many good people from host families, from teachers, from other coaches, from people I played with, from being able to come back and, and just and talk to you guys about this time. It's uh, it's a special place to me. Chris, we appreciate you joining us. Before we turn you loose, I just want to let you know something, okay? Growing up right. in rural Mississippi, just about every redneck friend that I had loved the Atlanta Braves. They loved the Braves because they watched the Braves every night on WTBS. There were two teams that you could watch at all times. One was the Braves at night. The other was the Cubs in the afternoon. Okay, and so I was a Cubs fan, and I would watch the Braves at night. But I always wanted to tune in to watch Harry Carey, Steve Stone. Vance Law. 1 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. Leon Durham. Wrigley Field, Mark Grace, Sean Dustin. We'll throw it in the stands every Lee time. Lee Smith. Yeah, those are good <laughs> Ryan Sandberg. I mean, yeah, you got so many great players. So here's the thing. I have a vested interest in what you're doing now. I care <laughs> about what you're doing now. And so I, here's the thing that's bad now is I have your number. So if, if, <laughs> if I see something during the season, I'm going to shoot you a text and say, hey, let me tell you something. This guy is pronating when he's supposed to be supernating. <laughs> you probably don't get nearly enough of that anyway. Well, well, I'll tell you two things. One, I will tell you, now that you have my number and I know you're a big Cubs fan, that just means once we get fans back in the stands, I'm just going to be counting on the days till you come up and get to come down on the field and watch batting practice and see the thing because it's as special as a ballpark. I, I, I say this all the time. I say, Duty, I say Duty Noble, I say Fenway, and I say Wrigley. And, that's, and those are my three ballparks. But to, to take your point to another level, those are the, that's kind of what I grew up with, with those, with those Cubs games on WGN. I, I lived actually in the, I grew up in the St. Louis area when my dad was in the Air Force. But I grew up, all those Cubs games, as soon as you came home from school, the Cubs were on, the Cubs were on, Rick Sutcliffe, Sammy, like those guys, like that was, and so it, when I was lucky enough to get this opportunity, I had just so many people that I knew I wanted to just shoot a text to or a message to that were the same way. One of my buddies is a NASCAR driver, lived out in Vegas, grew up on WGN, diehard Cubs fan. I couldn't wait to tell him. One of my best friends is the high school baseball coach here, WGN Cubs. And so it's, it's a really, really special place. I am, I'm just incredibly excited to get started. The people are fantastic. I cannot wait to just call that ballpark home and call that my office. And so I, uh, I share a lot of your same sentiments. I think that's, uh, I think that's what makes this franchise so unique and so cool is that so many different people from different areas of the country grew up on it. Chris, it's always great to talk with you, man. And hey, we really appreciate you taking your time out to talk with us. Yeah, absolutely, guys. I appreciate you having me. And uh, whenever you need something, let me know. I'm uh, I'm always here for Bulldogs. Well, thanks, Chris. And that's another show in the book. Appreciate you joining us, man. What a great conversation with Chris Young. Boy, came here 2000 to 2002, had a great career as a middle reliever, and is now the bullpen coach with the Chicago Cubs. So that'll do it for this week. We appreciate you joining us on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.